All right, thank you, Jason. So Jason had asked me to just give a, also a brief update uh, to share a little bit with you about our work, our ministry in France. So I'll, I'll take a few minutes to do that, and then, of course, we'll get into God's Word and spend some time in, in the text in Philippians. Uh, so my wife and I have been over in France for almost 11 years. It's gone by uh, pretty quick, but 11 years. And one of the big challenges for us now, uh, reintegrating into uh, life and culture here in the United States, uh, one of the big challenges for me has been to learn how to drive like an American. <laughs> so that's been, I, I, to tell you the truth, I've, I've been struggling with this. I have been flipped off and honked at more times in the last four weeks than I probably have been in, in years. Uh, the quantity of belligerent reactions that I've managed to provoke in people has been almost startling uh, these last few weeks. And I've been pondering this a little bit, trying to understand what's going on, what am I doing to offend so many other drivers on the road? And it finally kind of came to me um, recently, what's going on? Um, the thing is, Europeans and Americans have a vastly different hermeneutic of the turn signal. And what I mean by that is that Americans and Europeans have a very different way of interpreting a turn signal when they see one. So for example, uh, in France, uh, in Europe, when you put on your signal to merge into traffic or to change lanes on a busy road, what you're communicating, what you're saying is, I'm coming over whether you like it or not, get out of the way or be destroyed. That's, that's the idea. So you put your signal and you, you go for it. And what I'm discovering is that Americans don't like that very much. Um, <laughs> it makes them a bit truculent, a bit um, violent at times. Um, for the typical American, when you, when you here in the States, when you put on your turn signal to merge into traffic or to change lanes, what you're saying is, may I please come into your territory, into your lane? Pretty please. No? Okay, never mind, I'll wait and try again later. <laughs> So we have very different ways of understanding uh, turn signals. For the French, a turn signal is a command. For an American, a turn signal is a question. So why do I share this information with you today? A, a couple things. First of all, beware of French drivers, okay? <laughs> we'll start with that. Second thing, I'm gonna try something here, we'll see if this works. How about this, every time you see a turn signal, I want you to think of France. Every time you see a turn signal, think of ministry over in France and the work that we're doing there. Every time you see a turn signal, remember that less than 1% of the French population are Bible-believing, born-again, evangelical Christians. Less than 1%. Every time you see a turn signal, remember that God loves these cheese-gobbling, wine-swilling Frenchmen. God has given my wife and I a, a love for, for the French people and a desire to serve them in, in church planting ministry. Every time you see a turn signal, remember that in many areas of Western Europe, uh, many of the cities in Western Europe, especially France, are considered unreached. With the influx of immigrants and expats and students from all over the world, many European cities are ripe for gospel harvest. So every time you see a, a turn signal, you, you know what to do now, right? Think of, think of France. Now, Bergen Park Church sent, uh, sent our family over to Lyon. Lyon is a city uh, located about 300 miles south of Paris in the Rhone River Valley. Uh, you sent us to Lyon about 11 years ago, 
to do a couple of things. We had a couple of objectives. One was to form a strategic partnership with a French church planting pastor, a French church planter, to partner with them in planting a gospel-centered, Christ-centered church in the city center of Lyon. And God has provided for, for us in that way. Um, you've heard us share quite a bit over the years when we've been back on brief home assignments, brief visits. You've heard us share about that church plant and how that's developed. We started with about 15 people uh, nine years ago with that, ch with that church plant. And we've seen that church now grow to 85 members. In France, that's a mega church. That's a big church. So um, we're really grateful for what God has done, how he's provided in that way. Um, just recently... A couple months ago, we were able to move the, uh, the congregation from a small uh, room we were meeting in, in in the basement of a Catholic church. We're now, we've now moved to a theater that's given us a lot more space to, to grow. So we're renting a theater uh, a couple blocks away from where we were before. Um, we have the, the, the facility on Sundays, and it, it provides a lot more space. So our church is, it has room to grow. The church is growing. I also had the pleasure this last year of baptizing a young man that I've been studying the word with over the last year. And honestly, it was just a really good way to, to end our time at that, at that church plant. Uh, I'd been studying the Gospel of John with him, and he finally came to me and expressed a desire to, to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow Christ, and to be baptized. So one of our last services uh, at that church before we came back here to the States, I was able to baptize that young man. So God is at work in that church. It's a really exciting thing. And it's really come to a point where we've been able to pull out of that church. Um, the idea is to work ourselves out of a job. That's what we do as missionaries. We come in to support these church planting efforts, but the, the idea is not for me to stick around for 20 years pastoring the church. The idea is to help the church uh, gain a certain level of autonomy, uh, the ability to, to be self-sustaining. So that's where we're at. We've been able to pull away from this church, to leave on good terms and, and say, uh, keep, keep going, keep, keep doing what you're doing and, and continue. They have a full-time pastor now, they have elders, they have deacons, uh, the church is functioning well. So we're really thankful to God for that, that opportunity we've had. The second thing we went to France to do was to work with uh, the student population, with young adults, college and career age, uh, young people. So you've heard us talk a little bit about that over the years as well. Every Friday night, we have a, a group of probably about 20 students come into our home. Uh, we provide a meal for them. We, we, we eat together. We fellowship together. We study God's word together. And God has blessed that ministry as well. We've seen over 300 young people come through our, our home in the last few years. Uh, to, to, to share in, in, in Bible study and, and a meal with us. So that's an exciting thing. We've, we've been able to hand over that ministry as well to a young couple that actually met through that, that ministry. They're married now and are serving the church, and they're going to be continuing that ministry for us. So all that to say, God has answered our prayers. He's provided in, in some really tremendous ways for our ministry. Um, we're quite thankful for that. Now, a couple things I just want to share briefly to um, about our, our future ministry, uh, the logical question is what's next, okay? I'm talking as if, yeah, we've worked ourselves out of a job with this church plant, uh, we've handed over our young adults ministry, what are the next steps? And as Jason had mentioned earlier, we're back in, in town for a year, we're here to raise funds, um, we've, we've really struggled the last couple of years with, with the fundraising, um, expenses have gone up, we've had some support drop off, so we need to raise funds to go back to the field, that's why we're here. But part of our year here, too, is to, to reintegrate uh, back into, in, uh, into Bergen Park Church to spend some time with you, uh, to get to know you better. We're going to be visiting our other supporting churches around the country, spending some time with family, uh, preparing to move back to France and to begin uh, ministry there again. So that's what our year is going to look like. 
the second thing I wanted to mention, too, is that we have some exciting projects for the future. Um, we're kind of in a, a period of transition right now. Um, we've been looking with our organization, with Reach Global, which is the international mission of the Evangelical Free Church. We've been discussing with them a little bit about future possibilities. And we're looking at Paris as a future site of, of ministry for our family. Um, the French National Council of Evangelicals, which is an organization that brings together a number of different evangelical denominations and churches from around France, they have a very ambitious church planting project for Paris. And they need people to partner with them. They need missionaries. They need uh, resources, people to, to work with them to accomplish some of their goals there. And so as we've been discussing this with the French National Council of Evangelicals and with Reach Global, we've, we've been looking at possibilities in Paris. We think that's where God is calling us next to, to continue service. Um, so there's going to be continuity. We're going to keep doing a lot of what we did before, church planting work, uh, student outreach, that sort of thing. The context is going to change a little bit, though. We're going to be uh, moving to the Paris region to continue our ministry. Um, there's a lot more I'd love to share with you about that. We're still in, in, in this kind of transitional period right now, so we're looking at what is that, that going to mean? What is that going to look like? Where are the best partnerships in ministry? Uh, where are the church planting needs? So that's something we're going to be exploring over the next couple of months, and I hope to have more information for you on that uh, soon. Uh, we need to raise about $5,000 a month on top of what we already have coming in to be able to go back to the field. Um, so that's a big, that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge amount of money uh, and it's a big prayer request. So we want to ask you uh, to, to consider that, to be praying for us this year, to consider how you might uh, support this ministry if this is something God is leading you to. So like I said, we're going to share more with you as we have more information on, on what that future ministry uh, is going to look like in Paris, but we're excited about it. There are a lot of opportunities, a lot of good things that can be done still in France, a lot of needs there. So thank you for praying uh, for us in that. So remember, whenever you see a turn signal, and I'm sure you see them a lot as you're driving, think of France, think of the need uh, for ministry there. And interestingly enough, that brings us full circle, because I want to be talking about signals a little bit uh, this morning. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, talks about the signal or the sign of the gospel, how that's a sign to those who oppose the church that they will be destroyed and that the church will be saved. So Paul is talking about how the gospel and all that represents is a sign, a signal of destruction for some and of hope for others. Now, maybe you've asked God at some point to show you a sign, I think we've all been at that place some point in our lives. Lord, show me a sign. Show me a sign that you're real. Show me a sign that you love me. Show me a sign of your presence in this world. And the good news is that God has shown us a sign. He's given us the sign of the gospel and all that it represents in the lives of believers. So why don't we take a look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged 
in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So when the gospel, when the gospel is lived out authentically, this is a sign to the world that God is both judge and savior. God has given the world everything they need for belief. That's the idea here. He's given us creation. He's given us miracles. He's given us testimonial knowledge. He's given us Holy Scripture. He's given us the resurrection and the like. And in Philippians 1, Paul adds to that, saying that the existence of God's people striving together with a unified vision for knowing Christ and making him known in the face of opposition, this itself is a sign to the world of God's loving grace for his people and of his just judgment for unrighteousness. So you want a sign? You want a sign? God has given us the sign of the gospel. And this manifests itself in several ways, and I want to look at three things in the text today. The sign of coherent living, the sign of unified vision, and the sign of opposition. The first sign to which Paul refers is the sign of coherent living. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, he says. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that may strike us as a bit of an odd statement. After all, how can we live a life worthy of the gospel when the gospel is, by definition, something of which we are wholly unworthy? You see the problem there? How can we live a life worthy of the gospel when the gospel is something of which we are wholly unworthy? But keep in mind here that Paul is not asking us to pay back the cross. Paul is not asking us to pay back the grace of God in some way. Now, we celebrated uh, our daughter, our oldest daughter's 14th birthday this week. And imagine how odd it would be if, after receiving a gift from her siblings or from, from her parents, from someone, she would open that gift, evaluate it, its value, and then reach into her wallet and pull out the, the cash equivalent and hand it over for each gift. Imagine how absurd that would be. That's not how gift-giving works. God doesn't expect us to repay the cross. That's not the idea here. Rather, he empowers and facilitates transformation of belief and action so that there's consistency between what we profess and what we produce. There needs to be consistency between what we profess and what we produce. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Right belief should entail right action. A couple weeks ago, Jason had mentioned in his, his first message on this, in this series the idea that the lack of gospel conduct in the life of a Christian doesn't just mean lack of obedience. It means lack of belief. He's exactly right with that. There's a direct correlation in Scripture between belief and action. And even more so, there's a direct correlation between relationship and action. The more you know God, not just intellectually, but relationally, through a, a rich prayer life, through biblical and theological study, through a humble and repentant reliance on his grace, the more you know God, the more your action will reflect the character of Christ. That's the, the logical entailment. What I mean is that we generally act on what we believe. We see this all the time in our quotidian or mundane situations around us every day. For example, if, if, if I believe that 
um, the refrigerator has some good food in it, I I'm going to act on that by walking to the refrigerator, opening the door, and, and going in and finding something to eat, or, or that sort of thing. You see what I mean? There there's a relationship between belief and action. If I know that a, a pilot is, is competent in his work and that the, the aircraft is, is mechanically sound, I'm more likely to get on that plane and feel comfortable doing so. There's a correlation between belief and action. We strive for coherency between what we profess and what we produce. Now, in the book of Ephesians, Paul calls the church to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. He says this in, in Ephesians 4, verse 1. He goes on to say, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be careful how you live, he goes on to say. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You see, God isn't just asking us to be nice. He's not just asking us to do good. Anyone can do that. Atheists can do that. That's not really uh, the issue here. It's not about doing these, these, these good things. That, that's part of it. But what he's really calling us to is to live in honest and humble repentance, willing servitude, to live a life worthy of the gospel, not to live in hypocrisy. And I think true understanding and acceptance of the gospel is really the only way for Christians to avoid hypocrisy. We have to understand the gospel if we're going to avoid hypocrisy. And to tell you the truth, the world loves hypocrisy. The world loves the hypocrisy of the church, I should say. And hypocrisy is something that we're very good at in the church, to be completely honest with you. One day we're ranting and raving on social media about sexual ethics and all the problems in this country, the next day we're committing adultery. We speak of love and wisdom and forbearance one day and the next day we resort to, to name calling, whether on social media or just out in the world. And so we give the world a sign we give them a sign of our hypocrisy and of our stupidity. That's the sign we give them. And all because we don't understand the gospel and what that means. When we learn to live a life worthy of the gospel, our message becomes that of humility, of recognition of the sin and the fallenness that we share with the whole of humanity. Our message is to call people to a better way, and to the healing that comes from the gospel of peace. Instead of moralism, we communicate the transforming power of the cross of Jesus Christ for those who put their faith in the Lord. Coherency between what we profess and what we produce is a powerful sign to this world. It's a powerful sign. But there's more. Because God has provided the sign of unified vision as well. Not unity for the sake of unity or diversity for the sake of diversity. We like to talk about these, these words a lot today. But unity manifested in shared vision. That's the idea here. Unity manifested in shared vision. Striving together. Fighting together. And the, the word that Paul uses here in the Greek literally means to strive, to fight, to contend side by side. And I think the Philippians honestly would have understood this. They would have understood this well. Uh, many of the, the Philippians were retired Roman soldiers. This was a Roman colony peopled by, by Roman military. They would have understood this concept. 
The Romans used a, a variation of the phalanx fighting method. You see it all over in history. The Greeks used it effectively. Other civilizations used it, but the Romans were quite good at it. Shield to shield, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, with sword in hand, applying constant pressure, pushing ever forward. That was the idea. That's how it worked. Rome conquered the world not because of superior technology, because of superior politics, because of superior morals. That's not how they conquered the world. They conquered the world because of their superior armies. They had a professional army. I think history has shown uh, more and more that a lot of Roman technology was actually borrowed from the so-called barbarians. The barbarians weren't as barbaric as, as we once thought. So Roman superiority was in the Roman war machine. They were able to conquer the world because of their, their, their armies. Now, we don't quite understand that today. We don't fight that way today. We do understand football, though, right? We do understand 300-pound offensive linemen pushing forward against the defense, opening the way for the quarterback or the running back or whatever. That makes sense. So if you can't relate to the, the Roman military thing, at least you, hopefully you understand uh, how football works. But that's the idea, striving side by side, pushing forward with a common goal, with common vision, with common purpose. That's what Paul is talking about here. This is a sign to the world of God's grace and his justice. I do realize I need to clarify this a little bit whenever we talk about unity. That's kind of a, a touchy subject because you could very easily ask, if Christians are so unified, and if that's what we're called to do, why are there so many denominations? Why do Christians all hate each other? Why don't people in church get along? Why is there so much conflict? And that's an excellent question. I'm not sure I can really answer that question in, in the next couple of minutes, but I'll see what I can do with it. I think one thing is we need to keep in mind unity does not necessarily imply complete agreement on all issues or matters of theological deliberation. It doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. Unity doesn't mean acquiescence to some given uh, human interpretation or institution or, or super pastor or that sort of thing. Rather, unity means a common profession of faith in Christ and a common love for one another, a shared vision, a line of sight toward the goal, which is the gospel, which is Christ, which is knowing God and making him known. That's what unity is about. If you start getting to know other members of this church, if you uh, begin to engage in discussions beyond just the surface level, you start talking about important issues, studying the Bible together, you're going to find that no two people in this room today agree 100% on everything. That's just the way it is. Now, does that complicate things? Yes, it does. Uh, does it mean that unity is impossible? I don't think so. God's people throughout the world and throughout history share a common profession of faith in Christ. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his son. I believe in the spirit, that sort of thing. That common profession of hope is a sign to those who oppose the church that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. One judge. That's the idea. 
So Paul speaks of the sign of coherent living. He speaks of the sign of unified vision. And then he comes to the sign of opposition. The idea is that your Christ-like attitude in the face of opposition is a sign of the work of God in this world. Your commitment to the gospel, in spite of its lack of popularity, is a sign to those who oppose you. What this means is that the truth of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes by faith in him is not determined by popularity. Rather, the truth of the gospel is determined by its correspondence to reality. It's true because it's a fact, right? Apart from God's grace, we live naturally in opposition to the gospel. Apart from God's grace, we despise the truth. Apart from God's grace, we are darkened in our understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to the hardening of our hearts. That's Paul talking in in Ephesians 4. The irony of this text is that apart from God's grace, the only thing we see clearly in our state of spiritual blindness is the sign of our own destruction. That's kind of a scary thing. Spiritual blindness is the very reason that those who oppose the church can see clearly the sign of their destruction and still choose not to change their course. Spiritual blindness doesn't make God invisible to the unbeliever. Spiritual blindness makes God undesirable to the unbeliever. The problem isn't lack of evidence. The problem is hardness of heart. That's what Paul's saying here. My car has one of those radios in it with the woman inside of it that tells you where to go. I think it's called a a navigation system, a GPS, that that sort of thing. And um, whenever I turn on the car and turn on the navigation system, I get a little warning that comes up saying that the navigation system doesn't replace your common sense or ability to drive the vehicle, okay? You can't just sit back, fall asleep, and let the the, the car do its thing. You still have control of that wheel. You're still making choices. That's the idea. And I saw a uh, kind of a sad article recently in the news about a couple who were following the navigation system, the, the radio with a woman in it that tells you where to go, in their car, and it instructed them to turn onto a road and and cross a bridge, a bridge that was under construction. And ignoring the barriers, ignoring the warning signs, ignoring everything that had been in place to deter them from turning down this road, they turned down the road, drove off the bridge. Uh, The wife died in the accident. The husband was injured. It's a sad thing, but when asked later on why he ignored the many warning signs, he simply said that he was doing what the GPS told him to. He followed the GPS. It said, turn, he, he turned. He didn't see the sign because he was blinded by his guide. The sign pointed to the truth, but he couldn't see it. In a similar way, that's what sin does to the human heart. That's what, what Paul is talking about here. The gospel is a clear sign to those who oppose the church, and yet they drive right through, right past. If what you produce aligns with the gospel you profess, if what you produce aligns with what you profess, then the world will oppose you because they're opposing the creator, they're opposing the savior, they're opposing the judge that that you proclaim. If your life points people to Christ, then Christ becomes the sign to them. 
Christ is the sign. Christ becomes the one that they will either accept or reject. I want to urge you to let the grace of God and the salvation that comes through faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ be a sign to us and to the world that there's hope in the name of Jesus Christ. Living a life worthy of the gospel should be a sign pointing clearly to Jesus our Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words, um, the words of Scripture, the words that you have revealed to us um, to instruct us in righteousness. Lord, we ask that you would help us to, to put these things into to practice, to live a life worthy of the gospel, to allow what we profess to align with what we produce. Lord, we want to do this to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.